Salut et bienvenue. Hello there and welcome. Welcome to City Breaks Toulouse, episode 6, Art and Architecture. I'm going to spend most of the episode thinking about the contents of the half dozen art galleries to be found in Toulouse and one or two related galleries, such as a photographic one and a poster museum. But before that, I'm going to think about another aspect of the city that is related, and that's the architecture. I'd like to take a few moments to think about a set of buildings that are really very distinctive interludes, not found really anywhere else at all, and that's the fine mansions dotted about the city from the 15th and 16th centuries, known collectively as the Hôtel Particulier. They date from the golden age of the city, the time when so much wealth was being created because of the popularity of woad that was produced here and exported all over the world. Many people made their fortunes, and one of the things they did with their fortune was to build themselves a very fancy private mansion somewhere in the city centre to show off their status. It was quite the thing for the Capitol, the ruling councillors of Toulouse in the 15th and 16th century, to build themselves a town residence, the, their hôtel particulier, and then obviously a country estate as well outside of the city. On the whole, these buildings are built of brick, red brick, but many of them have a stone façade. Stone was a sign of wealth. You could show that you could afford what most people couldn't if you could at least cover the front of your house, the façade, with stone and preferably some sculptures and some decorations. It was a rule as well that only if you were a capitol were you allowed to add a tower or a turret to your mansion. And so as you have a look at some of the ones I'm going to talk about when you're on your way around Toulouse, do have a look for those. If you see a tower or a turret, you know that someone particularly important had that house built. They're quite hard to spot. Some of these buildings today in Toulouse have been turned into private flats or they're used as schools or offices. So I'm going to pick out one that you can actually go into and visit and two or three more that are quite stunning and quite easily noticeable if you know where to look. So let's start with the one you can actually get inside. It's called the Hôtel Acesa, and the reason you can get in is because it is used as an art gallery today. It has a foundation inside it called the Fondation Bemberg. More about that a bit later in the episode, the contents, but for the moment, just let's think about the building itself, which dates from 1555, and was built for a wealthy woad merchant known as Pierre Assisa. As soon as you see the outside, you'll be immediately aware of its splendour. It's got the expected stone façade, in fact a rather fancy one, with eight columns, something quite new at the time when it was built, but much copied later when other people wanted their buildings to look neoclassical as well. Inside there's a splendid patio, a covered porch, as well as being visually very splendid, it played an important role in the culture of the city of Toulouse, because it was the home of something that was originally called the Jacques Floral, which was a competition set up to promote the Occitan language. The event itself predates the building by several centuries. It was set up in the early 1300s as a competition. A group of poets set it up. They thought, right, how can we raise the status of poetry? Let's have a poetic Olympics. We'll invite troubadours and poets from all around the area to come once a year and compete, show us their wares, sing us their songs, read us their poems, and then we'll have prizes, we'll give out some gilded flowers, and this will promote the Occitan language. Louis the Fourteenth in 1694 took over this idea, was very keen on it, and he made it sound more French. He established something called the Académie des Jeux Floraux, and there the committee, still in existence today, 
who run this event every year, which is held on May the 3rd. So, this building, the Hôtel Azissa, became the place where the competition was held, and a good way for the owner, Pierre Azissa, to show off his credentials, to participate in local culture, etc., etc. Actually, he fell foul in the end of other forces, because he became Protestant, just when that wasn't the thing to do in Toulouse, he was forced into exile, and lost all his wealth along the way. But his name lives on, as does the building he so proudly had designed. Another hotel is the one called the Hôtel de Barny, which is in the Rue Léon Gambetta, again built for a wealthy road merchant. This one was one Jean de Barny, who was a Spanish Jew. He'd fled to Toulouse from the Spanish Inquisition and was obviously fabulously wealthy because from 1503 onwards, he started to have this building put up with its lovely Gothic brick courtyard. And then it took at least 30 years to build. Eventually there was a Renaissance stone courtyard as well, and a tower, of course, to show how wealthy and powerful he was. He must have become a Capitola sometime after his arrival in the city. And one of the things about which people comment in relation to this house is, not only did he have the money to have stone used on the facade, the part, the front of the building that everybody was going to see, there was also a lot more stone used in the building of the courtyard, and that gives you a clue as to how absolutely fabulously wealthy he must have been. Also not lacking in cash must have been the owner of the Hôtel de Baguise, to be found at 25 Rue de la Dolbade, also a magnificent stone façade. And in fact, this house was actually called the Hôtel de Pierre, the stone mansion, even in the title. He wanted everyone to know that this was what it was built of. The locals weren't so keen. They thought that a lot of the stone had probably been stolen from the site of the Pont Neuf, the new bridge that was under construction at the same time. There's a much quoted sentence said to have been uttered by the locals at the time, which shows you what they thought about how things had been done. Il y a plus de pierre du pont à l'hôtel de pierre. There are more stones from the bridge at the hôtel de pierre que de pierre au pont than there are stones at the bridge itself. In other words, he's stolen most of the building materials to build his house. Who knows if it's true, but that's what people were saying. The owner of the house in the early 1600s was one François de Clary, and the gorgeous decorations sculpted on the outside of the front of the building are all references to his coat of arms. So the garlands of flowers, the fruits, the eagles, the suns, all of that comes from his family coat of arms. And you'll notice too that his monogram has been sculpted across the doors right in the front. There's one road quite near the Capitole which has got a number of these hôtels particuliers in it. So that's worth seeking out. It's called La Rue des Changes. It was a road even in Roman times in Toulouse. It was a popular street in the Middle Ages, but in the 16th century it became a place where the elite, the Capitol and so on, felt that they would like to live, quite close to work near the Capitol building, and so very handy, and it became the place to have your house if you could possibly afford it. And if you go down there today at number 16, you'll notice a building called L'Hôtel d'Astorg et Saint-Germain, which was built in 1590 by a capitol called Guillaume de Saint-Germain. And just along the road at number 19, there's another one called L'Hôtel de Bruxelles, built, you've guessed it, for yet another capitol, and he was called Arnaud de Bruxelles. Pretty house with a Renaissance courtyard and an octagonal staircase. It does seem as if every capitol or every well-off person had to find a slightly new and different way of decorating their hôtel particulier. A staircase here, 
a sculpture there, etc. I guess the name gives the clue, really, doesn't it? Hotel Particulier. Each one was Particulier, a little bit different, special to whoever had it designed. OK, so, so much for that. want to move on now to the other aspect for this episode, namely art in Toulouse, the galleries. If you've had a look at a guidebook already, you may have spotted that there do seem to be quite a lot of galleries to choose from. And I think the reason for that is because Toulouse, across the centuries, has always been a city that took art seriously. As early as the 15th century, we know that the Capitol, who were ruling the city, the councillors of the day, commissioned an official artist and told him they wanted some scène historique, historical scenes, or some paintings of myths to do with the city. And we've seen already, haven't we, in places like the Capitol, paintings that do exactly that. For example, they commissioned a painting to commemorate the day or the period during which the Huguenots were driven out of the city. Because they were interested in art, they brought artists in to work particularly in Toulouse. They wanted the very best quality. So they brought people like, for example, the French sculptor, Marc Arquis, who had worked on the Sorbonne in Paris when they were setting up the Salle des Illustres, so the room in the Capitol building, which was to remember all the most famous people connected to Toulouse, it was decided to bring him down from Paris to sculpt some busts. So he did, for example, the one on Louis XIV. And having got here and started work and liking Toulouse, he stayed on, and you can see his work in places like the Saint-Sernin Church or the Saint-Étienne Cathedral. The Capitol didn't just commission French painters, they liked to go for some foreign talent as well, particularly from Italy. And this had the effect of an exchange of ideas being set up between Toulouse and other centres of artistic excellence. So there's a local painter, for example, called Nicolas Tournier, who did part of his training learning from Italian painters and then came home to Toulouse, where he painted quite a lot of things for various churches in the city. And guidebooks will tell you that he was very much influenced by Le Caravaggisme, so the work of the Italian painter Caravaggio. So all of this contributed to the idea that Toulouse was a city which took art very seriously. And so today, to find so many galleries there is perhaps not such a surprise after all. There are a couple of contenders for the city's most prestigious art gallery, and one of them would certainly be Le Musée des Augustins, so the art gallery which has been set up in what was an Augustinian monastery dating from the 14th century. It became a museum as early as 1793, in fact, an auspicious date, of course, just post the revolution, when a lot of churches had been destroyed, when artwork had been stolen, museums were being set up. That's pretty much the same date as the Louvre being established, and Toulouse, of course, long arrival with Paris, decided that it too should have an art gallery. So the Musée des Augustins was set up. The building itself is a work of art, of course, Gothic-style cloister. It's got a massive bell tower, chapter house. These are all original buildings. The cloister was added a bit later, in 1626, I think it was finished. The refectory looks medieval, although in fact we know that it was much renovated and altered a little bit, in fact, in the 19th century by that architect, the Viollet-le-Duc, that we keep coming across. So, what artwork will you actually find in there? Well, it's particularly well known for its collection of 12th century works, sculptures mainly, which had mainly been taken from the city's main three churches, so Notre-Dame de la Dorade, the Basilique de Saint-Sernin and the Saint-Étienne Cathedral. They were all the work of local sculptors and to have them now all in one place is the reason that 
The museum is said to have one of the finest collections of Romanesque sculptures that you can find actually anywhere at all. There's a second room of sculptures just next door, dating from later times, so you can see they're a bit more sophisticated, a bit more intricate. Things like carvings of biblical scenes. For example, there's a carved scene of the death of John the Baptist. There's a whole collection of gargoyles. And then moving on to later rooms, there's a collection of artwork from what Toulouse refers to as its golden age, so the 15th to 17th centuries, again linked to the wealth that came to the city via Wode and so on. And in there you'll find lots of work by two people we've already mentioned, the painter Nicolas Tournier and the sculptor Marc Arquis. But there's also a lot of work by foreign artists from the time, so a Rubens painting, for example, Christ Between the Two Thieves, And then the exhibition rooms continue on through the centuries, taking in everything up to and including some 20th century works. Painters such as Ingres, Monet and Toulouse-Lautrec all feature there. I'm sure it doesn't make for good listening material for me to go through lots and lots of the works to be found, so I've picked out five that I really liked and I'm going to just mention them briefly. Starting then with a painting from 1619 or 1620, the Rubens painting, Christ Between Two Thieves. I always think of Rubens' paintings as having large buxom women in them, but this is really a very different. We know that Rubens, in fact, had worked in churches in Antwerp for quite some time. He did a lot of altar paintings there, and he did this one in that context for a church called the Church of the Capuchin in Antwerp. painted on a wooden panel, and the central part of the painting is lit up. You've got Christ on the cross and Mary Magdalene kneeling down at his feet in anguish. And then either side of him, the two figures of the thieves, much darker, very much in the background, really. Another painting I liked was one called The Descent from the Cross, 1630, done by Nicolas Tournier. So pick that because he's a local artist, of course. And that shows the body of Jesus that's been taken down from the cross. He's got four figures surrounding him. And in the background, a large wooden cross, which is a bit spooky because you suddenly realise when you look at it that there is a pair of hands grasping it, presumably belonging to somebody standing behind the cross that you can't actually see. So it makes you feel that somebody there is keeping a watch on this scene. Then there's a fabulous painting from 1845 called The Sultan of Morocco Leaving His Palace at Meknes by Delacroix dating from a period when Delacroix had actually travelled to Morocco. He'd been part of a diplomatic convoy. I don't think the diplomacy went very well, but it did leave him the inspiration to do some lovely paintings. And this one he actually did 15 years after his return. So it's obviously a scene that's stuck in his mind. And it's a painting of the Sultan, one Muli Abd Er Rahman. And he's dressed in all his finery, looking very imposing. And he's riding away from the city walls, watched by his entourage. Fourthly, I'm choosing a painting by perhaps the best-known female French artist, dating from the Impressionist times. She was called Berthe Morisseau, and this painting is called Young Girl in a Park. shows a young lady with flowing, long red hair set against a garden background, and it's a painting using a model that you might recognise because it was a girl that Berthe Morisseau frequently featured in her paintings, someone called Jeanne-Marie. And then the last painting I picked as a sample of what's in here, is a painting from the 1890s called Passing Conquest by one Henri Toulouse-Lautrec. 
We'll come back to him in a later episode, but this one is a series of 11 paintings that he did depicting the life of a Parisian courtesan, believed to be painted during a period when Toulouse-Lautrec was still living in Paris, but was really quite disenchanted with everything, beginning to find life quite seedy. And this painting shows us a woman sitting at her toilette. She's got her back to us. Perhaps she's a dancer, maybe, or a courtesan, or a singer from one of the Paris nightclubs. And rather spookily, just off-centre, there is a man sitting on a chair, watching her very closely, perhaps a bit too closely. The other very well-known big gallery in Toulouse is called Les Abattoirs. It opened in about 2000, and it's a contemporary art museum, featuring mainly works from the 20th century. The rough guide entry that I looked at describes it as, quote, one of France's best contemporary art museums and also an inspired piece of urban regeneration. I think they've said that because the building, Les Abattoirs, was, you've guessed it, an abattoir, dating from the 1830s and used right up until the 1980s, in fact. And when it was decided to recycle it as an art gallery, I think it was quite an inspired idea, really, because the spaces inside are absolutely massive, so it's a good place to show off big pieces of art. They've got over 4,000 pieces there. They concentrate on 20th century artistic movements, not just from France, but also from Japan and the US. And they have all sorts of different art schools represented. So you get titles for rooms like Abstract Expressionism or Spatialism, and one that we'll come back to in a minute called Art Brut, which is perhaps naive art. The piece of work there that most people go to see is a Picasso piece. It was actually a theatre curtain designed for a stage production in the 1930s. It's called the Minotaur in the Harlequin costume. It's very fragile. It's been newly restored, but they look after it. It's only on show for half of every year. So if you really want to see it, you need to check in advance when it's on display. Another artist that's featured there quite a lot is someone called Pierre Dubuffet, an artist termed a naive artist who was quite controversial in the post-war period because he took things in a new direction which didn't always go down very well. One of the art critics I read, for example, described it like this. While the public looked for a redemptive art and a restoration of old values, Dubuffet confronted them with childlike images which satirised the conventional genre of high art. While the public looked for beauty, he gave them pictures with coarse textures and drab colours, which critics likened to dirt and excrement. So if you like the sound of that, get along there and have a look. If things ancient are more your thing, then you may prefer the Musée Raymond, which is the second largest display of Roman sculptures anywhere in France, second only to the Louvre. It's got over a thousand pieces. It's two exhibitions in one, really. On one floor you find a collection of exhibits which have been excavated from the whole of Toulouse and the surrounding area and tell you a lot about the life that the Romans led here in the very early centuries of the city's existence. And then down in the basement there are the remains of a Roman necropolis. This is very closely linked to Toulouse because it's really the fruits of excavations which were done in the 1990s when it was decided to dig near the tomb of the martyred Saint Saturnin and see what else could be found. And they came up with around a 100 sarcophagi, which are all here to be seen. If you also visit the saint saint church, then of course you can link the two and really see how one led to the other. A different museum again is the Hôtel d'Assesa. We've talked about the building, we didn't mention the contents. Inside is a 13-room art gallery, 
Again, arranged chronologically, the rooms have got names like La Salle des Portraits, so the portrait room, pictures by Lucas Cranach the Elder, for example, in there. There's La Salle des Impressionistes, where you'll find your Monet and your Pissarro. There's one called La Salle des Dessins, so the room of drawings, with drawings by lots of well-known artists, mainly French, so Degas, um, Picasso, Toulouse-Lautrec, etc. There's a whole room of Venetian paintings from the 18th century. And there's a room called the Bonnard Room, named after Pierre Bonnard, by whom you will find no fewer than 35 paintings here. They're quite striking. He was a great fan of intense colours. He used to like painting outdoor scenes in bright sunlight, such as a painting here called Marine, which is a boat on a sunny beach, or a painting of some flowers, Iris et Lila. But when he started out, in fact, he was known as an intimist. He was somebody who used to like painting domestic scenes. And there are paintings of his here with titles like Au Café, which just shows two women together in a cafe in about 1900, or another one called La Femme au Peignoir Rouge, the lady in the red dressing gown. Just a figure sitting in a kitchen, probably at breakfast, I would think. Another of the smaller museums is called the Musée Georges Labitte, after one Georges Labitte, who was a 19th century man with a lot of time on his hands, I think, and quite a lot of money. He was a passionate traveller, used to go off to all sorts of places and bring things back, and ended up opening a museum so that he could show them off. He was actually born in Toulouse in 1862, but he went off to Paris to be educated. He went to the École Supérieure de Paris, and from there he began to get interested in travel. He started quite ordinarily with, by going to places like Switzerland and Italy, but it wasn't long before he started to do some much more exotic travelling. So in 1889, for example, he went to Japan, where he became very fascinated with the idea that Japanese culture was changing fast. Western influences were coming into the country for the first time in centuries, and he was very keen to collect some of the artefacts that they had and take photographs and bring it all home and store it and display it so that he had a handle on all these things that were going to disappear. So this he duly did, brought them back to Toulouse, organised an exhibition, and then, as that went quite well, he decided to buy a building to put them in, so he founded this museum in 1893, and as he continued his travels and went to other places, he brought more things home and put them there as well. His interests were things like the history of art and the history of religion and ethnology, and this museum very much reflects all those interests. He wrote in a letter to his aunt a sentence which I quite enjoyed, explaining why it was he felt you had to travel if you wanted to get new ideas and improve your thinking. So this is what he wrote. Ce n'est pas sur les bords de la Garonne. It is not on the banks of the Garonne, i.e. the river that flows through Toulouse, qu'il faut chercher les idées larges, that you should go looking for big ideas. Travel broadens the mind, I suppose, would be a rough translation of that sentence. Anyway, he died in 1899. He was only still in his 30s, actually, but he'd acquired a lot of these things and a museum, which he duly left to his father. And when his father died in 1912, he left the whole lot to the city of Toulouse. Since then, the collection's been enlarged. In the 1930s, they began to specialise in Asian art. In the 1940s, they acquired quite a lot of things from Egypt. And if you go around the museum today, you'll find rooms on countries such as Egypt, Japan, China, Mongolia. The Rough Guide was quite amusing. It described it as a, quote, pure Orientalist fantasy, a Gilbert and Sullivan-esque vision of the East. 
but it's a nice museum to visit. It's a Moorish villa surrounded by a lovely garden and in the garden they've planted lots of Asiatic and Mediterranean plants. Inside, all kinds of things. Highlights would be perhaps a real Egyptian mummy along with a 14-minute video that tells you all about her. They have exhibitions, they run workshops, a whole range of things. I mean, just the, just the list that I picked up, adverts I saw while I was there. Come and learn about Mahjong, journey through ancient Egypt, find out how to wear a kimono, the workshops on Japanese cuisine and origami and calligraphy and the tea ceremony. One of the comments on TripAdvisor I thought was rather pertinent. It described the museum as being, quote, small but perfectly formed. Although I have to say that other people left comments complaining that there wasn't really enough English in the signage, which I think actually is possibly true. So that's a selection of galleries, art galleries. And then two I wanted to add to the list, both a little different. The first one is a photographic exhibition in somewhere called the Chateau d'Eau. Chateau d'Eau means water tower. Dates from the 19th century when, again, a capitol, these people get everywhere. This one was called Charles Lagan, gave the city 50,000 gold pieces, if you please, with the aim that a water tower should be built so that clean, pure and drinkable water could be distributed to everyone living in Toulouse. What a noble aim. So the building was duly put up. It was used as a water tower with eight pumps filtering clean water right up until 1870, when, in fact, the processes were modernised and moved elsewhere, but the lovely building was still there. It was described when it was built as being a building with, quote, solid appearance that pleases the eye and the spirit. So they wanted to keep it for something. They were very aware that if you climbed up to the top, you got lovely views of the Hôtel Dieu Saint-Jacques and the tiled roofs of the city. What to do with it? In 1974, someone had a good idea. Let's reopen it as a photographic gallery. Naturally, they started with a bang because the very first exhibition they held was of the work of a photographer called Robert Duano, who, if you know one famous French photograph, it possibly will be this one. It's called Le Baiser de l'Hôtel de Ville, which translates as Kiss by the Town Hall. And it's just a moment snatched in a Parisian street of a young couple kissing. If you've seen it, I'm sure you'll remember it. The Chateau d'Eau is actually France's oldest photographic museum. It's been going since the 70s and they've now put on very nearly 500 different exhibitions. Just as a flavour, ones that I've seen adverts for was an exhibition on various different photographs of the Couvent des Jacobins, so very Toulouse in flavour. There was another one called Géométrie Urbaine, Urban Geometry, if you like, black and white photos, all of them billed as a chance to immerse yourself in architecture, punctuated by la présence humaine, human presence. So quirky photographs of buildings from all different angles, close-ups and unusual views, all with a geometric theme. And then thirdly, they had an exhibition on photographs of rugby, in which the rubric told us that it really wasn't about telling the history of rugby, it was much more focusing on what does the artist with a camera make of rugby. How can they turn it into art? So, a whole collection of esoteric things. And then, almost to finish, a museum which on its own website calls itself Le Plus Petit des Musées Toulousains, so the smallest Toulouse museum, and that's one called MATOU, M-A-T-O-U. The M stands for musée, A stands for affiche, which means poster, and the TOU, T-O-U, is, of course, the first three letters of Toulouse, so it's the 
poster museum in Toulouse. Got a small exhibition room with about 30 posters on display at any one time and material dedicated to the history of posters. So starting actually in the 15th century, if you can believe that, but focusing really from the 19th century onwards when colour lithographs were invented. A bit of a feature of the work of Toulouse-Lautrec, they've actually got 14 original posters of his there. I think there were 32 in total, so they've got nearly half of them here. And they were posters designed originally to advertise cabarets in Paris at places like the Moulin Rouge or the Élysée Montmartre. So they were the beginning of artwork used for advertising, really, and that's a theme of the museum. They have quite a lot of exhibits of original publicity material from things like matchboxes and wine bottles and soap packaging. And they too stage temporary exhibitions, all kinds of things relating to posters. So, for example, two that I know about, there was one on original posters from the Great Ocean Liners, so think Titanic and that era, and another one showing posters where all the illustrations featured animals. So again, a real ragbag, potluck. I think really it's best to turn up in a spirit of whatever it is, it's bound to be interesting. Okay, so that finishes off museums in Toulouse that I wanted to mention, but I did want to mention just one more art museum, which is in nearby Carcassonne, because there's an episode on Carcassonne coming up later, which is going to focus more on the castle and the history. Um, so I thought this was a good moment to just say that there is the Musée des Beaux-Arts, the Fine Arts Museum in Carcassonne. Again, chronological in order, featuring very heavily French works and including two local artists, one Jacques Gamelin, born in 1738 in Carcassonne. He was apprenticed to a merchant who employed him for a while and then realised that he was actually much more interested in art than he was in business. So this lovely merchant paid for him to study at the Académie Royale and in fact then to go on and study in Paris and Rome as well. And in Rome, he eventually ended up as a painter to Pope Clement XIV. But he did return to Toulouse in the end and teach at the Art Academy. If you've been to other galleries in France, you may have heard his name. He's quite well known for having done lots and lots of battle scenes. And they have several of those here. They've all got the same title, bizarrely. Choc de Cavalerie, they're called. Depictions of people on horseback fighting. But he also did religious scenes, so there's a painting here of Christ turning the moneylenders out of the temple, and another one of angels visiting Abraham. But he did domestic scenes as well. There's a lovely one here of showing a whole family and various servants in the background, entitled Scène d'Intérieur, so interior scene. And the second local artist featured here is one Henri Martin, you may remember his name because he's got a whole room dedicated to his works in the Capitol building that I talked about in an earlier episode. Born in Toulouse in 1860, studied also at the Art College in Toulouse and then went off to Paris where he won prizes and made a name for himself as a sort of post-impressionist painter linked to the Pointillist movement. And here there's a small selection of his works including a couple of rather curious ones there's a self-portrait of him showing himself as John the Baptist. And there's a curious one called La Douleur, which means pain, which shows a lady all dressed in black wearing a veil, examining her hands. And then finally, just a mention of one other painting in this Carcassonne gallery, which is called Les Émurés de Carcassonne. Émuré means walled in, so it's a painting reflecting the Albigensian crusade when the people of Carcassonne were besieged. 
they hid inside the walls of the city and were violently, savagely attacked by crusaders sent by the Pope, who didn't like the idea that they were hiding some Cathars in the city, people who didn't follow the Catholic religion but did their own thing. So a very Carcassonne-flavoured painting and quite a fitting one to see in the Musée des Beaux-Arts de Carcassonne. So that's a rundown then of all the things artistic that I thought worthy of mention in Toulouse and Environ. And that brings us to the end of this episode and just give you a quick forward look to next week when I'm planning to do an episode on the Canal du Midi, that technological wonder of a canal built in the 17th century to join the Atlantic Ocean to the Mediterranean Ocean. It goes through Toulouse, of course, and it's a very characteristic part of Languedoc-Roussillon, something, one of the things that people come from all over the world to see, or even to sail down in a canal boat, of course. So, we'll have a good look at that next week, but for the moment, I'm going to sign off by thanking you very much for listening, merci, and wishing you goodbye, in French, of course, au revoir. <laughs>